Welcome back to the Consultancy Business Podcast. I'm Phil Lewis. We're calling this one All in the Mind. It's all about the role of psychology in your work and your decision-making and the decision-making of your clients. What we do know about psychology is that there's a lot of value in confidence. If you can give an air of authority about why you've kind of given that price and you stick with it, I think people can pick up quite quickly when you start to wobble with your nonverbal signals. There's definitely something in that confident thing because then you exude confidence to the client. Oh, okay, they are confident in this price, so they must be confident this is the right price to pay. That's Dr. Simon Moore, CEO of the psychological insight and strategy consultancy, IB. He's my guest for the whole of this episode. And in the second half, we'll get to answering questions and problems from the consultancy business community. You can access the members-only extended version of this podcast in two ways. Firstly, you can join the consultancy business community for mentorship and conversation that will help you thrive as an independent consultant. We'd love to welcome you there. Or, as a first step, you can dip your toe in by backing us on Patreon. For just $8.99 a month, you get the full-length version of this podcast, including extended interviews and Q&A sessions that are packed with even more insight about how to survive and thrive as an independent consultant. An exclusive opportunity to ask questions that will feature in our Q&A sessions and periodic deals on membership of the consultancy business community. You can find that link in the show notes. Right now, though, you're listening to a shorter version, which is freely available on all the usual podcast places like Apple, Spotify, and Amazon. If you like what you hear in this episode, we'd love you to publicly rate and review this podcast, recommend it to others, and share it with anyone you think would benefit from listening. We're a startup, so spreading the word in this way really helps us out. Hello, I'm Simon Moore, and I'm a chartered psychologist. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Phil. Is it fair to say that sometimes what people say they think and what they claim their behaviour is can be quite different from what they actually think and how they actually behave? I guess in politics, we there's this idea of people talking left and voting right, isn't there? It seems to me that some of the value of your work is probably grounded in being able to, A, help people genuinely understand what others think and feel and and also understand what they behave and maybe why sometimes what we say doesn't necessarily match up with what we do. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think it's not that people are outwardly lying, although sometimes they might be. You know, we've all got egos, we've all got self-esteem we've got social status which we're trying to protect so and that can skew the cleanliness or the accuracy of what we're reporting because we're we're managing that i mean we are you know i always say people are their own pr agents uh, and they do it at a non-conscious level they're probably not aware they're doing and i do it as a psychologist you know i've been doing psychology for lots of years and I find myself thinking why did I say that at that particular point so you know it's just pervasive to human nature and that projection of who I am to the outside world what kind of issues needs presenting symptoms in organizations get people picking up the phone to people like you. So when is it that your work becomes most valuable in the context of business? There was a time ago where it used to be a problem with traditional methods that they had at their 
kind of disposal that they couldn't solve. Uh, that was usually where we would get called in to do, you know, where someone would have the feeling that where they'd got to was not the right answer. And it wasn't resolving anything, whether that was, if you think about customers, whether that was you know, onboarding, retention, thinking about how they engage with their loyalty subscription schemes, or whether it was in an employee world of, again, sort of retention, onboarding. It's that kind of feeling of, I don't feel I've got all the answers here. That's changed, I think, in the last three or four years where I think from my my perspective, people are much more educated in the most part about how psychology and sort of behavioral science can help. So we get a little bit more proactive engagement now around, you know, we're thinking of a brand proposition. How do we know this is going to be the correct proposition and how do we frame it in the right way or you know we've got a new product how do we describe it how do we kind of represent it offline as opposed to online so a little bit more forward thinking now well it seems to me that there's something actually quite challenging isn't there about about embracing psychology in businesses which is that you might find out stuff that actually doesn't sit conveniently with your view of the world or might in some sense challenge work that you have done in the past or whatever, you know, I mean, if you've, for example, been in marketing and you've been creating your direct marketing and writing your advertising for years and years off of what consumers have told you in focus groups, and then a bunch of psychologists walk in and go, actually, what you're hearing in those focus groups might not be that reliable. And you kind of know that, by the way, because their behavior is telling a different story to what they're saying in the focus groups. But nevertheless, you've gone off what has been said in those groups. That's an innately quite a difficult set of dynamics to wrestle with in terms of the internal politics of the organization, isn't it? And on the other side of it, if we think about something like culture change in organizations, well, again, there's something about a bunch of psychologists walking in and going, actually, the way that you think your organization functions isn't really how it functions, or what you think drives that functioning isn't what drives that functioning at all. And you've been engaged in, say, five or 10 years worth of culture change work off a bunch of hypotheses and assumptions and so-called insights that aren't actually that accurate. That can feel like quite challenging. Yeah, and I think the word, you, you know, the change word is definitely, I mean, humans don't like change uh, in general. So I think there's definitely that. You can split, I think, in terms of, if I think back on where who we've engaged with, I would definitely say there's a big split from uh, the way you look at the world perspective. So I think if you're, if you're quite risk averse, then, you know, someone like me does, does, pose a bit of a risk initially if you think of the world in that way because you know I could come along and show you very quickly what is working as opposed to what you think is working and as you quite rightly said Phil that could undermine your last 10 years of how you've done something and obviously then that starts to challenge you and your identity as as a person as opposed to someone who's a little bit more risk, risk tolerant a bit more open a bit more adventurous and is looking for new things, new solutions, new tools. I think those clients, you know, we, we do get a lot of success with those in terms of wanting to 
add to the toolbox. And as, and as I said, we're not a, you know, take this or and leave everything else. It's very much a augmentative kind of approach. And I think those types of clients have, where we've had more success, that's not to say that we, you know, we don't work with clients who are initially not open because of the having to change their view on the world. But it is definitely a problem. I, I would definitely agree. And how about consultancies then? So, you know, you um, are effectively, I think, a consultant yourself. You go in and you use your skills as a psychologist to consult with organizations about what they should be doing and how they should be doing it. Do you partner successfully with other consultancies? What predicts a good consulting relationship or partnership for you, if so? Yeah, and we do. We work with lots of consultants, work with lots of agencies. For me, the best working model is a bit of a combination between kind of medieval trading. So I've got some chickens, you've got some pigs, let's swap. So, you know, they've got methods and skills that we might not have. And if you combine them with the psychology stuff, that actually can be quite impactful. And then the other part of that relationship that I think works well is the kind of relay race. So, you know, we might start the baton and then we hand it over. So we do the digging around the long grass, you know, what's hidden, what's there, that traditional kind of ways of looking at things might have missed. And we kind of surface those things and then explain why they might be important. But then we then hand that over. So that data gets handed over so that that consultant or agency can then work on more of the reality of what's happening rather than possibly more assumptive kind of starting position. One of the great challenges is, well, how do you get to the real truth of what's going on in the business? So it seems to me that what you're offering in psychology is a very useful set of tools that can help other consultants who are working with clients, in clients, on clients to understand what's really going on. And as you say, if you can then hand that off to them so that they can start thinking through the implications of that, that would seem to be a very additive relationship, I think, if it's set up in the right way, no? Yeah, I think, and, and we work together. And uh, what is always, I found really interesting is we'll dig up from a psychology point of view, we'd dig up the stuff and then we, you know, handed it over to you. And then what you've done with it has been really fascinating from my point of view, because it's like, oh, you've sort of translated it into that kind of business world. So that's how that relationship, you know, almost like that medieval trading stuff works. I think it works really well. The other other thing I find interesting, which as a sideline is the kind of white coat syndrome is also can be quite beneficial to, um, to other consultants when we work with them so you know throwing me or one of the psychologists in the room with them has that kind of non-conscious effect of establishing not only differentiation oh you brought a psychologist into the room this is interesting but it kind of adds that kind of i suppose perception that you know you are taking this sort of seriously so it kind of undermines your kind of worth and value to the client just by the visual cue I think and I think I've come to realize that in the sort of last couple of years that that can be equally important yeah well the other thing I heard in white coat syndrome is also the authority that the kind of 
academic background that people like you have brings as well. I mean, anybody who studied psychology is a pretty serious statistician, for example, and has probably been through, if they're chartered, many, many years of training. And it seems to me that to be able to walk into an organization with that weight of academic history and that weight of study behind you conveys an authority that actually a lot of consultants hopefully can convey in different ways, but it is additive in those kind of environments where clients are really looking for exemplary levels of knowledge and exemplary levels of insight from sources that they can trust. Yeah, no, sort of opposite to that sometimes. We always have to be careful because given what you just said, you know, we can often go in with our sort of stats backgrounds and kind of work out quite quickly that a client might not have the data they think they have or organizing the way that's useful or actually collecting the right data, for example. So those conversations could be quite interesting. You have to be quite careful how you leverage them. But again, it's not just the data itself. It's that ability to help shape the data collection. So it's the way in that you might ask the questions or how do you kind of tap into that audience in the right way to get that clean data. Well, yeah, I mean, if you summarize it, I think one thing that your work has in common with all consulting work is something like no one likes to be told they've got an ugly baby, right? No one likes to be told that the data that they've been collecting is the wrong data or that the, back to the earlier theme, that the stuff that they've been looking at and the basis on which they've been doing all of their work may not have been the right basis, you know. All of that requires a level of sensitivity in conversation. You're listening to the Consultancy Business Podcast with me, Phil Lewis. We're into the second part of the episode now, where Simon and I turn into agony uncles, giving advice and feedback on specific questions offered up by consultancy business members or Patreon backers. If that's you and you've got a problem or issue you'd like us to get into for you, just get in touch. First question. I have been told for years that I should price my services based on their value. This seems easy in principle, but hard in practice. Any advice? What we do know about psychology is that there's a lot of value in confidence. If we look at forensic psychology or criminal psychology, and we look at eyewitness testimony, what the research would seem to indicate is that people who are very confident are actually valued more as um, witnesses. Even though what they're saying might be completely inaccurate and not offer much value, but it seems that the jury actually values confidence over accuracy. And I wonder whether there's something in that from a human nature point of view where we get signals of value from how confident you are in projecting an argument or in this case, a price. So in other words, I wouldn't say, you know, be stubborn, but if you can give an air of authority about why you've kind of given that price and you stick with it, I think people can pick up quite quickly when you start to wobble with your nonverbal signals. There's definitely something in that confidence thing because then you exude confidence to the client. Oh, okay, they are confident in this price, so they must be confident this is the right price to pay. Well, there's a dark side and a light side to that, isn't there? Because the the sort of dark side to it would be 
that that would favor the bullshitters, you know, that actually somebody who just projects an air of confidence, regardless of the merits of their approach or their background or their competency or whatever you want to say, is going to do better than somebody who actually might have a really strong approach, background, competency set, whatever. But the light side of it is when you can actually have that confidence and that confidence is coming from a place of legitimate understanding of and belief in what your value really is. Yeah, definitely. Because then you, you from that point, because you believe it, you are going to give the signals out non-verbally that you are confident in that. It's not just something you're saying. You can see from your kind of your face, your body positioning, that those signals are matching the confidence. Ah, so it's so... that belief. It's that. It's that belief. So, for example, if if I go back to forensic, if you look at lying behaviour, basically what we know about lying is that you can't keep it's actually quite exhausting to continue a lie. Okay. So we can do it for a while. And then what then tends to happen is we turn that lie into, we, we kind of start objecting to your questioning, which is different. It's not, you're not saying I'm telling the truth. You're now objecting to the person who's quizzing you. And because that's less emotionally tiring than actually just trying to keep the lie going. So from that point of view, if you turn that around into the confidence thing, if you actually believe your price is right, then you are going to match that with all your other signals. And it's not going to be tiring. It's just going to be a natural thing that you can keep doing. You're not going to tie yourself up by doing it. It's just going to be, I believe in this. You know, I, my, my emotions are with me on this. Okay, so this is excellent because what I just heard in what you said was actually my immediate response, which was, well, hang on, doesn't that favour the bullshitters amongst us? is actually not borne out in reality because in the end, somebody who isn't properly grounded in their value and is actually just a bit of a con artist, and look, I mean, there's plenty of grifters in our market, right, certainly in consulting, that in the end what's going to happen is they're not going to be able to keep the facade up. So actually their body language, their nonverbal cues, everything else, will ultimately belie that confidence which means that people who are legitimately grounded in their value and can project that confidence have a degree of competitive advantage, which is great because what you hear in that is, well, the good will ultimately out, provided that the people who are actually good at what they do do the work to build the confidence in and around their own pricing, which is the challenge that comes off what you're saying. Is there something else, Simon, as well, though, about needs in amongst all of this? Because... If we're thinking about pricing based on value, well, value is kind of in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? So I am a prospective client for somebody's services, and I have a set of things that I want, right? I have a set of needs. And how much I'm prepared to pay, it seems to me, is probably a function and a consequence of the extent to which I believe the services that are on offer are going to meet those needs. You were talking about the non-conscious earlier on. I wonder if there are non-conscious needs that people have that actually, again, influence how they perceive value and actually in the end influence what price they're prepared to pay. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And I would completely agree. And I think a lot of people get fooled that when they are trying to kind of propose a piece of work, that they frame it around the 
other person's business, which is fine. But to your point, you also have to bear in mind that that person is a human being and they have their own particular needs. And it may well be that they need to, you know, maintain their sense of intellect. They might might use your project to maintain their status within their workplace. So there are going to be personal needs as well that we have to bear in mind. And I think it's really important that you don't just focus on the business that you're trying to get the work with it. You actually focus on the person. So who's the gatekeeper? Who's going to be the person here that is going to actually sign off on your proposal? And you need to think, work out what are their needs? You know, is it about that they need to be in control? So in other words, you know, you might say, I'm going to go and do all this fancy, lovely work for you. And then I'm going to come back and tell you what it, what results I find. Now, for someone who's got high needs for control, they're going to be like, no, 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 that's not comfortable with me. I want to be part of this process. How are you actually reassuring me that I am part of the team here and that you're not just going to go away, huddle in the corner and then come back and go, da-da, here's your results. That won't wash with me. Whereas another person who doesn't have those high needs for control actually needs to defer to authority will say, look, you know, we're signed this off. You go away and come back when you're ready with your stuff. That, that kind of how you frame those two people are really different in terms of how you kind of put that proposal together. I've seen a lot of clients get fooled that they're selling to a physical place. They think of the bricks and mortar of the actual company rather than the person who's in front of them. I remember doing some stuff in um, COVID, if I am allowed to mention that word, where one of the things that we got hired to do by several organizations actually was to join calls and look at the person's background. So, you know, if and at this time they hadn't worked out how to blur their screen. So we could actually get signals from their background. And they were doing a lot of this from their like home office or sometimes from their work office. And so there were visual cues there. So it might well be, you know, I'll give you a really basic example. So there were clients who had lots of um, sort of certificates on their wall or trophies in the background, as opposed to those people who had like family portraits. And what we worked out was that the people who had certificates and trophies, you need to talk about them and how this is going to help them as an individual, because that's what they were about. It was all about them. Whereas the person who had more of the cues about groups and social connection, like family photos, it was about the team. So how was your proposal going to help their team, for example, within that workplace? And what we found is that had actually improved success in terms of conversion. That ability to actually look at the person's needs to your original point. If I'm a consultant and I'm trying to help an organization sell more or market more effectively, and they're saying B2B, being able to understand what the primary needs of my different audiences are and how they vary and how they may not vary across audiences seems a really useful thing that would be worth talking to psychologists about and maybe engaging psychologists around because if you're trying to sell a B2B product or service, for example, en masse, then you need to be able to get to a very quantifiable understanding of what the different needs are and how they show up psychographically across audiences. Yeah. And I think you can also match, you know, if you are lucky enough to work in a sort of small team or you've got a couple of colleagues that are working alongside you, it's also knowing how you match the needs up of the client you're talking to, to the, sort of the values and needs of your team members. I've been on calls where I knew the client was really into, you know, football. 
So I've joined the core because I quite like football and we've had a conversation. And then I've had other, on that same team, I've had uh, one of their kind of subs, uh, shall we say. So they're kind of like second in command was really into sort of environment and sustainability. So we switched. So we actually put our team member who kind of shared those values on the core and they got on really well. And it's not just talking about the sort of the nitty gritty of the proposal. It's being able to engage personally on that where people, they feel comfortable, they feel secure, they feel safe. Uh, It helps them get into that cognitive mindset of being able to make a choice rather than getting back to our original part of the conversation being on the back foot of being sort of suspicious, being kind of insecure, being a little bit kind of nervous about where's this going to go. Whereas I think if you can naturally interact with someone who shares similar interests and values, I don't think we should underestimate that. And that's really useful in actually working out people's values as well. Simon, this has been a tremendous discussion. If people want to get hold of you and learn more about your work, how might they get in touch with you? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn or you can have a look at our website, uh, www.weareib.co or you can email me on simon at weareib.co. Simon, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. If you take nothing else from that discussion, it'd be worth considering these two points. Firstly, it's always worth seeking to understand what the underlying needs of the individuals that are sitting in front of you might be. The environment can offer clues to this. Remember, we all seek to create environments in which our needs can get met. And secondly, on pricing. Project with confidence your proposed pricing in a way that talks directly to those needs, but also remains connected to an intuitive understanding of your own value. If you're a member of the consultancy business community, we have some content in our course, Advance, that is geared towards helping independent consultants understand what their value really is. Here's where the non-members version of this podcast ends. In the members version and the version on Patreon, Simon and I go on to tackle a second question from the consultancy business community about how to help a client achieve cultural change in their teams. You can access that and lots of other additional insight by joining us at theconsultancybusiness.com or by backing us on Patreon. As a Patreon backer, you benefit from the full-length version of this podcast, including extended interviews and Q&A sessions that are packed with even more insight about how to survive and thrive as an independent consultant. You'll also get an opportunity to ask questions that we will feature in our Q&A sessions and periodic deals on membership of the consultancy business community. Check the link in the show notes. If that's not for you just now, you can get next month's shorter version of the podcast right here. Just hit subscribe in your podcast player so that future episodes run seamlessly in your device. And please do recommend and share the link to the podcast to others that might be interested. We're a startup, so all word of mouth and social media recommendations are really helpful to us. Thanks as always for your support and bye for now.